Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God. His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. Thank you to our generous underwriters on Sharper Iron, the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. And Luther Classical College, a college for Lutherans by Lutherans, opening in fall 2025. Learn more at lutherclassical.org. On this Thursday, April 6th, we are studying John chapter 19, verses 17 to 30. In today's text, Jesus is crucified between two criminals, and as he dies, he utters the triumphant cry, It is finished. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Jeremiah Johnson. Pastor Johnson serves at Glory of Christ Lutheran Church in Plymouth, Minnesota. Pastor Johnson, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Thanks. Always great to be here. As we get started today, Pastor Johnson, give us some context. We are on the day of Good Friday. What should we know as we prepare to look at this section of John 19? Right. I almost feel bad rehearsing all of this, but just just in case it's some of these details uh, have fallen out of our brains. Um, you know, Jesus, of course, has a, he's already finished in the upper room with his disciples, uh, instituting the Lord's Supper. Jesus has gone out already, and uh, you know, they went out to uh, to Gethsemane, where uh, the people uh, uh, the people of the crowd goes and, uh, and captures Jesus. Well, I should say captured because he goes willingly, so I guess uh, they, they lead him away. Um, and then uh, you know they take him to Annas's house, um, and uh, and they uh, they have a mock trial there. I mean, and it is worth noting, by the way, that uh, you know th- they're doing everything wrong. Um, you know, Jesus has denied justice every step along the way. You know, they take him in darkness and they lead him, you know, you're not supposed to have trials in somebody's house. I mean, so this whole thing is a kangaroo court. Um, but of course, this is famously where Peter's outside in the, uh, uh, out in the, the courtyard. And whereas Jesus is uh, being questioned by the, um, by the religious leadership inside, Peter is out there sadly denying yeah, you know, he should have had witnesses, but he has none. Um, or actually, I should really say his, what should have been his witnesses are, are actually acting against him. So uh, then they sent him, uh, then they sent him to Caiaphas, and, uh, you know, which is also, uh, you know, rather unusual. And uh, then eventually he makes his way to Pilate. Pilate tries to set him to set him free, um, you know, he gets beat up by the, uh, by the soldiers. And I think one thing worth noting, um, every step along the way here in the, uh, in the account of the crucifixion and all, all the other steps up going up to it, people are saying completely true things, but they don't really mean them. Um, you know, there's truths being uttered from the, uh, the mouths of the high priest, uh, and of course, and the religious leadership, even the soldiers, right? They, they mock and say, "Hail, King of the Jews!" But of course, that's exactly what he is. Yeah. And um, and as uh, Pilate leads him out, you know, he says, "He says, behold your king." And I think it's probably an attempt, you know, as he he looks beaten and bloodied, to to garner some sympathy. But even Pilate speaks the truth 
even if nobody can recognize. And I think we're going to notice that same theme being carried on today as Jesus hangs on the cross. People are speaking the truth or the, the circumstances are speaking the truth about Jesus, but if only we have ears and eyes to hear and see the truth. Mm. So, Yeah, that's been something that we've seen in John's gospel really throughout where people will speak the truth unknowingly. And it's even been more heightened here as we've gotten to the crucifixion, as you said. We're going to see, I think, the climax of that with the inscription that is put over Jesus' head, that thought that Jesus is the king of some kind, that he is a king, that's been really going throughout the trial of, of Jesus and is really going to come to its climax. So we get to see the fulfillment of all of that in our text for today. So we're picking up in John 19, verse 17. I'm going to read the last part of verse 16 as well. So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write, the King of the Jews, but rather, this man said, I am the King of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her into his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, To fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished, and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. That's our text for today. That's John 19, verses 17 to 30. Pastor Johnson, at the beginning of our text, Jesus is led out to the place where he's going to be crucified. And in those first couple of verses, John gives us the circumstances of his crucifixion, the name of the place, who is crucified with him. Take us into those, those first two verses. This isn't the, the happiest picture in the world at the beginning of the text. No, no, nor should we expect him to be. Um, you know, he goes out bearing his own cross, which probably isn't unusual, and it's probably just the cross beam. I mean, many of your listeners probably already know that, but I mean, he, you know, he, uh, he shoulders uh, that burden and it kind of makes you naturally think of uh, that famous passage from Isaiah chapter 52. He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. I mean, no, that our griefs and sorrows aren't wood, but there is very much this, this sense that, um, that the prophesied Messiah, the, the suffering servant that Isaiah talks about literally bears the, uh, you know, the sins you know, the sins of the world and its effects. You kind of see that 
sort of echoed faintly, you might say, just in the, um, you know, in the shouldering of, uh, of this, you know, great wooden beam. Um, and of course, you know, we have a number of details we know from other texts, uh, you know, that he can't, uh, can't quite make it. So he needs some, uh, some help, uh, but that's not in there. So I'll leave that. Um, yeah, but I think it's, it really struck me. In fact, um, just as you were reading it, how, how very straightforward, you know, we know a lot more from the other gospels about these two, these two other criminals, one on his right, one on his left, but John though, doesn't say much about them, but I think that's pretty noteworthy. Um, you know, with two others, one on, a, on either side, just between them, right? Um, and the lack of detail about it um, strikes me really as being almost a a subtle commentary that Jesus, he's just another criminal, yeah. right? Or at least that's how he's being treated, right? Here's a criminal, there's a criminal, oh, and Jesus is in between them. In fact, it it sort of reminds me of the account of Jesus's baptism, that as he goes down into the Jordan River, um, you know, and of course, John rightly protests this, you know, I wonder if John had been there, you know, could, you know, if, if he, in running commentary on all this, if he would have had a similar protest, like, oh, he's going to get himself crucified like a common criminal, right? And, you know, John's protest at his, Jesus's baptism was essentially, uh, you know, he's just getting himself baptized like a common sinner. But I think we see that once again, that reflection that Jesus really does, you know, stand in the place of sinners, or in this case, hang in the place of sinners, as if he's just another criminal. Yeah, yeah, I, that's interesting that you, you point that out, that John doesn't actually tell us that the other two are criminals or robbers or or any of their crimes. They're just ones who are to be crucified and Jesus right there with them. So it's, right. it is almost as if he's where he's supposed to be, which he is where he's supposed to be, but ironically so, and in a way that's unexpected to, it seems, everyone. And, and so let's get to then the, the matter of the sign that Pilate puts above him. That's where we get to in verse 19. Mm-hmm. Pilate puts an inscription above the above Jesus on the cross that reads, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Maybe first of all, before we talk about the importance of what is written, why is there a a sign above Jesus at all? What's the purpose? Right. It was pretty typical um, during that time to write the charges of the person, um, you know, being crucified on a a sign above their heads. And so um, I imagine, and this is just me a little bit of speculation. I mean, I, we know that crucifixions were public in order to prove a deterrent. And it makes sense to me anyway, this is the, the speculation part, that if, you know, if they put the charges up there, I mean, this is a clear warning sign for anybody who's passing by, like, hey, do this crime and this is what's going to happen to you. Right. Um, obviously, it wasn't 100% productive because otherwise it wouldn't have had any crucifixions. But, but I mean, it is, knowing that though, it does make it all the more unusual. I mean, what kind of crime is that to be king of the Jews, right? right. Um, you know, did anybody ever get arrested for being a king? I mean, they may have got killed, uh, you know, out of, uh, you know, the machinations of, uh, you know, other people who didn't want them to be there. Um, but I think, now, I mean, if you don't mind, we're going to jump outside of John, but I think it's worthwhile pointing out, um, we really see this emphasis in Matthew, that when the Magi come, who are they looking for? They're looking for, the king of the Jews, 
And, but that also is the very same title that Herod had taken for himself. And, um, and that's probably why he's, you know, so irate. I mean, if you can go back, you know, think about, uh, how that must have struck Herod when he calls the, uh, the Magi, you know, into his presence where he's the one who's touted himself, you know, the King of the Jews. And this is what he's worked so well, hard, if you want to call that, I guess he's worked hard or ruthlessly to, uh, to defend this, uh, you know, the self-proclaimed title. And here's this little baby and these guys are, are wandering off of the Orient, uh, you know, and they're looking for the King of the Jews. I mean, remember, of course, Herod's this, uh, you know, he's a megalomaniac and, uh, you know, and of course he feels threatened. Uh, you know, he feels threatened by this. And that's why he has all the, you know, the, uh, uh, the innocents, uh, you know, murdered in Bethlehem because there's possibly a rival who is the king of the Jews. But now, isn't it fascinating that the Roman governor is actually proclaiming him to be this? You know, I, I mean, isn't this great? We get, at least at the beginning of Matthew, we get foreign, well, if we want to call them dignitaries, sure, we'll call them that, um, you know, proclaiming Jesus to be the king of the Jews. And now we have a Roman governor at the, at the end of his life proclaiming him to be the king of the Jews. You know, you think we might, like the reader maybe should put this thing together, that, that Jesus is indeed a king. I mean, um, and, yet, and yet, I think you, you kind of hinted at this already, there's kind of a paradox here in all that. That here we've already seen, he's, he's hung up on a cross, you know, which is where criminals belong. And yet he's being declared as a king. And so, you know, one might ask, is there reading along with this? Like, you know, if you can imagine yourself cracking open the, uh, Jesus' passion for the very first time, saying, well, who, who is this guy after all? Is he a criminal or is he a king? The sign says he's a king, but, you know, the, the crucifixion says he's a criminal. And, I mean, that's really the great paradox that we, uh, that we actually embrace with Christ is that it's both. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, these two realities stand together in the cross, you know, that he's both a criminal and that he's a king. He's a, he's a criminal in the same sense um, that, uh, that he was also a sinner when he waded down into the Jordan River to be baptized. I mean, he stands with sinners and those who are even worthy of death. And yet, nevertheless, there he is. Um, you know, and we've seen all the other signs of his, uh, of his kingship, right? The, uh, the crown of thorns, the scepter they give, the royal robe. You know, even though they mean to mock him with all of this, here he is enthroned on the most unusual cross ever known to man. Hmm. And, uh, and so, I mean, we, we see it screaming out from this text that he is indeed this, this heinous sinner. And yet also, you know, not just the king of the Jews, but as we, uh, you know, anybody who's been reading along with John and really the king of all. Clarify or just make sure we understand what you mean when you say that Jesus is a, here a, a heinous sinner. We're not saying that Jesus has committed sin himself. Right. He, right. he is, in fact, as Pilate has said more than once in this account, he actually is quite innocent and he has not mm-hmm. done anything wrong. That's true in terms of he didn't deserve to be crucified. And it's also true in terms of his sinlessness personally. So so make sure we understand what it means when you're, when you're saying that Jesus was a heinous sinner at this moment. Right. What I'm talking about here, of course, is substitution. That's a fancy fancy word for it. Um, and, uh, but no, you're, you're quite right that in and of himself, Jesus, of course, is completely innocent. But, um, but he dies, you know, as a heinous sinner because 
it's our sin. Um, I think if anybody it was, you know, it was the high priest who actually said it really well when he had prophesied, it would be good for one man to die in behalf of the people. He's not a sinner because he is himself, but he's a sinner because he's a sinner on behalf of sinners. He's taking our place. He's the ultimate substitute. He takes on, you know, he, he shoulders all that on our behalf. I mean, this is, uh, this is what we mean, by the way, when we say in Christianity, we talk about the substitutionary atonement. Um, he dies as if he were a sinner because we are the actual sinners. So that's what I mean. Right. So this would be perhaps best put in terms of the way Paul writes in Second Corinthians chapter 5, that God made Christ to be sin, even right. though he knew no sin, mm-hmm. so that we would Precisely. become the righteousness of God. Second Corinthians was at 521, I believe. Is the the is that's the background for what you're what you're saying there? So precisely, just, yeah, very good. So and and what's what's striking about this? And if we can, you know, I appreciate you bringing out what Matthew gives us in terms of that. That's quite something where the Magi come looking for the King of the Jews at the beginning of the Gospel, and you don't find him, if you will, and you don't find him fully until you see him as the King of the Jews hanging on the cross. Thinking in terms of the way John has set this up, the the kingdom talk and Jesus being a king especially goes back to the conversation that Jesus had with Pilate, where Jesus has said his kingdom is not of this world. So mm-hmm. how is he going to reign as a king? It's not the way that earthly kings reign. Rather, he's going to reign as a king by dying on behalf of his subjects with all right. of their guilt upon him. And that's, you know, again, just to, to kind of keep the nuance of, of John in there as well. Here we're really seeing what does it mean for Jesus to be a king? This is actually how he rules though Pilate means it perhaps ironically. It's kind of interesting. I, I don't know if, if Pilate is, it seems at least the way John re- records it, that Pilate with this inscription is maybe taking more of a shot at the chief priests than anybody with this sign. But either way, I don't think Pilate, Pilate doesn't seem to grasp the truth of what he's written there, but right. it is quite true. Right, right. Um, yeah, I think he is probably jabbing them a bit. Um you know, because when they, they come and protest, he doesn't back down. Like, oh, yeah, they, you know, you guys are totally right about that. Let me go ahead and go change that. He just says what I've written, I've written. Um, but, you know, looking just a little bit before, I think it is um, what highlights this even further there. You know, the uh, the religious leaders' total rejection of Jesus yeah. um, is highlighted just in the verse prior to where we started when they said we have no king but Caesar. (laughs) And so, yeah, Jesus is indeed not their king, but that doesn't mean he isn't our king. Right, right. Well, and and with that contrast, their declaration, we have no king but Caesar, and now here's what the king of the Jews looks like. Perhaps there's, at least for us as readers of John, there's a bit of a question, you know, which king do you want? Do you want the kings of this earth, Caesar? Will Will you stand in that camp, or will you receive this king, Jesus, to be your true king? Right, and it, that actually calls to mind once again. I'm, unfortunately, I'm going to uh, vary from uh, from John again, but that sounds awfully familiar uh, territory to uh, Jesus's temptation in the wilderness when mm. the devil essentially uh, tempts him with an alternate kingship. Yeah, uh, he's saying, "Yeah, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world," because ultimately uh, they are under the authority of uh, of the tempter, right? Mm. Yeah, and so, but uh, not to make too much of that, because you know that's 
I'm once again wandering outside of John. Sure, but and that's okay. That's okay to do. <laughs> I'm just <laughs> thinking, in, again, in the context of John, going back to the very first words that Jesus spoke as John recorded them, he asked what, Andrew and probably John was the other disciple with him. They came, they came to follow Jesus after John the Baptist had pointed mm-hmm. out him mm-hmm. as the Lamb of God. The first thing Jesus asks them is, what are you seeking? And, and it's just to kind of use that as a, a way through this gospel. What are you seeking from Jesus? Well, here we're finally getting to the point where this is what you should be seeking from Jesus, is this kind of king, the one who comes to die in your place with all your sins upon him. Here's what you should be seeking. The, the Pharisees, the rulers of the Jews, refused to seek after Jesus in that way. They declared they'd rather have Caesar for their king. This is the king we need. This is the king we should be seeking, the one who's crucified on our behalf. Right. And Jesus, um, he already has hinted at that, if not outright prophesied it, if you think earlier. Now, I will go to John. John chapter 3 in his conversation with Nicodemus, um, when when he says, um, you know, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now, we don't have the kingship necessarily, but we do have, um, we do obviously have that that theme of lifting up crucifixion, and that is the means to eternal life. And this, so so ironically, this you know even though this crucifixion means death for Jesus, it, it will ultimately mean his lifting up will mean eternal life for us. And ultimately, that is his reign. I mean, uh, and I think you can even see perhaps a uh, you know a, a hint of that in. Um, Oh, I just I just had the thought. Now it's escaped me. Never mind. Let's let's move on. All right. So let's let's keep going. I, I do want to just briefly, if you have any thoughts on the fact that Pilate writes this sign in three languages. I mean, I think John records it because that's true. Pilate did record it in three languages. Is there any theological significance or, or significance otherwise to the fact that Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews, is written in these three different languages? Right. Um, the, the practical reason, of course, for that is, is because those are the three, the three primary languages of the, uh, you know, in this region of the Roman Empire, Aramaic is going to be the lingua franca for, you know, for the Jews specifically, um, you know, and uh, in Latin, of course, is the official language of at least the Roman ruling class. Um, and uh, in Greek is, is the common language all across the empire. But I think, you know, if you were to perhaps press that a little bit. Maybe I'll ask it as a question rather than as a statement. I wonder if that doesn't testify to Jesus's, um, how would I put this, uh, to Jesus's universal kingship. He's yeah. not, even though he's the king of the Jews, they don't just write, write it in Aramaic, right? right. He's a uh, you know, in, in that way, does that perhaps just hint a little bit that he has come not just to save the Jews, but to, as we read in John 3, save the world? Yeah, yeah. I that's That was on my mind as well. Was and it? Not, not just John 3, but also— Well, we both thought it, it must be right That's then. right. There you go. That's right. <laughs> I was thinking also of John 12, where some Greeks come seeking Jesus. Mm-hmm. And that's where Jesus declares for the first time in John that his hour has now arrived— and he goes on right there again to speak about him being lifted up from the earth and draw all men to himself. And so, yeah, again, I, the fact that Pilate writes in all three languages serves a practical purpose. But theologically, I, I think maybe, I don't know if, if that's the point of it, but I think we would be right to see that as at least 
in the background, that the fact sure. that there are three languages is a reminder, if nothing else, that Jesus has come to be the Savior for all people, not just for one particular group, but for all, all the languages of the earth, including these three. So Pilate puts the sign and on Jesus, three languages, and, and as just a brief point, when you see the letters I-N-R-I on Christian, in Christian art above Jesus, that would be the Latin version of this inscription. Right. Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. That would be the Latin version. So we get to pilot what I've well, written. It's, a, it's an ahead. acronym, of course. I yes, mean, it's just okay. the first letter right. of each of those. But Thank yeah. you. Yes, right. Inri is yeah. not actually a word, right? <laughs> <laughs> Jesus, I don't, my, my Latin is not going to be perfect, but Jesus yeah. and Jews, those start with I in Latin. In is Nazareth, and then R is Rex. That's the yeah. Latin word for king. So thank you. Yes, not Inri, but Jesus of Nazareth, <laughs> King of the Jews. So that brings us then to, to verse 23. The soldiers crucified Jesus, and we get to this talk of dividing his garments. Got about two minutes here before the break. Uh, Pastor, get us in, get us started with the garments. Right. Now, of course, the, the point about the garments isn't just about the garments. Um, and, but thankfully, John fills us in. Um, you know, this was to fulfill the scripture, which says, I divide my garments among them. And that, of course, leads us to the, to the famous Psalm 22. And I mean, we could spend the entire time talking about how um, Jesus' crucifixion intersects with, uh, with Psalm 22. Um, but it's, it really paves the way for seeing Jesus as the suffering sa Savior. Um, I mean, even though it seems pretty clear that the, the soldiers are totally clueless what they're doing, even they unwittingly are testifying to the fact that Jesus is this promised Messiah who is going to suffer on behalf of his people. And then there's a really interesting back and forth that I think uh, Psalm 22 engages in um, that we can, we can understand looking back on it is between, uh, between Jesus the Son and, uh, and also God the Father and really articulates nicely the kind of confidence Jesus is actually uh, placing in him. So, but... Um, I don't. I, I don't want to jump in too soon because uh, I probably want to do that on the other side of the break. That that's a good idea. So let's go ahead and take our break right there. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFUO. We're talking to Pastor Jeremiah Johnson this morning about John chapter 19. We'll be right back. Please stick around. What do you think of when you hear the word college? Expensive? Liberal? Woke? Imagine a college that is affordable. A college that is unapologetically conservative and Lutheran. A college that won't take a dime of federal funding. A college that teaches the best of our Western heritage. A college where students grow in the Christian faith instead of leaving it behind. This is Luther Classical College. A college by Lutherans and for Lutherans. Visit our website, lutherclassical.org. Subscribe, become a patron, and join the thousands who are making Luther Classical College a reality. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Thursday, April 6th. We're studying John chapter 19, verses 17 to 30 with Pastor Jeremiah Johnson. He serves at Glory of Christ Lutheran Church in Plymouth, Minnesota. Pastor Johnson, prior to the break, we were talking about the garments taking Jesus' clothes and dividing them, although one isn't divided, it's not torn. And John's going to tell us in verse 
24 of the text that this is fulfillment of the scripture. He quotes from Psalm 22, and you were telling us before the break that Psalm 22 features very prominently in the passion of Jesus in what happens. Take us into some of those details from Psalm 22, not only what John quotes, but from that whole psalm. How does it speak about, how does it teach us concerning the passion and crucifixion of Jesus? Right. And so you, your listeners probably uh, recognize at least the, uh, uh, the one-liners from, uh, from Psalm 22, but may not even always realize that they're actually all from the same psalm. Um, you know, for example, um, you know, uh, I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax melted within my breast. Um, dogs have encompassed me, a company of evildoers encircled me. They have pierced my hands and feet. And then, of course, then there's verse 18. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. And, of course, there's even the, uh, the, the famous passage about uh, Jesus calling out to the Father, Why have you forsaken me? And so, uh, and there's so many either direct or, or uh, you know, or indirect quotations from this on the, uh, you know, on the cross, or at least allusions to what's going on. But what I'd like to do is actually go back to the beginning of the psalm, um, because I think it really helps us understand um, the relationship between Jesus and the Father as it's kind of unfolding here on the cross, um, uh, or maybe I should say as it's being manifest on the cross. And so, you know, right away at the very beginning of the psalm, it, it starts with the cry of dereliction, that famous line, my God, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer, and by night, and I find no rest. And so, uh, you know, so, you know, Christ echoing these words, we, we hear his, his forsakenness from the Father, and uh, which, of course, is, a, you know, how can the father forsake his own son? I mean, it, it becomes a great, a great mystery, even though, you know, we step in very quickly and say, well, he's being forsaken for our own sake because he's, you know, he's suffering the punishment of, you know, of estrangement from God, um, you know, for our sins, which, which is exactly what our, our sins do. But then it's interesting because it quickly sort of turns a corner where, um, you know, uh, well, David originally then then Jesus echoing it articulates his trust in in God and he says uh he says in you our fathers trusted they trusted and you delivered them and to you they cried and were rescued and in you they trusted and were not put to shame so once again we've got this another paradoxical moment where you have uh Jesus expressing through Psalm 22 this you know, this cry of forsakenness, and yet at the very same time, um, you know, echoing this, this ultimate trust in God that, um, you know, which is he? Has God forsaken him or is God going to rescue him? And once again, on the cross, we actually see that it's, it's really both. He will, uh, he will trust in the, uh, the Lord. In fact, even when um, you could hear an echo of the, uh, the passers-by, in um in, in verse eight, he trusts in the Lord, let him deliver him, let him rescue him, for he delights in him. And but that's precisely what's going on, that he does indeed trust in the Lord, and the Lord will indeed deliver and rescue him, but not before he is first forsaken. And uh and so you kind of have Psalm 22 really as 
it's almost like a commentary on, you know, what's going on between the father and the son, you know, and with sort of all the onlookers, you know, sort of, uh, you know, throwing their commentary by the way as well. Mm. So Psalm 22 then stands in the background of this. Uh, talk a little bit about just the what what's happening to Jesus on the cross here, because I think this is something that perhaps our Christian art doesn't always depict as vividly as John does here. So uh, as we see Jesus hanging on the cross, he's he's completely naked here, isn't he? Right. And right. so he is. Uh, yeah. yeah, I know. Con- contrary to all the loincloths that are put on all the, uh, you know, for the sake of modesty in so many of the paintings, I mean, Jesus has been absolutely stripped bare of all of his clothing. And, um, it, you know, I'm certainly this is not the only um, connection and explanation to all, but I can't help but think of Adam and Eve in the garden. Hmm. Um, if, uh, if we remember that, um, you know, of course, they were at first prior to the fall, they were naked and unashamed. Uh, they were unforsaken, you know, before that. But once they uh, once they rebelled against God, they uh, they realized they were naked and they were ashamed of it. They needed to be cover up, covered up. And of course, you know, they try to make fig leaves for themselves and God mercifully gives them, uh, you know, the, these clothing of animal skins. And but what that really points ahead to, I don't want to say it symbolizes, but it points ahead to, I think, the reality of uh, of sin, because sin needs to be covered up. In fact, one of the, uh, the on the Ark of the Covenant, um, the, uh, the Seed of Atonement, literally, um, when the blood would be spread on it, it would literally cover over it. So one of the words for atonement is to cover up. Um, and I think there's there's a relationship here. I mean, I don't I don't want to make like the clothing of Adam and Eve sacramental or something like that, but it points us to what's really going on with sin. It needs to be covered over. Or if you fast forward to, uh, you know, the pictures that we have, for example, in Revelation, what do we have? The saints in uh, you know in the new heavenly Jerusalem, they're wearing the, the robes made white in the blood of the Lamb. All of their sins are covered over. Um, and so, and so here we have Jesus kind of doing sort of showing precisely the opposite of that. He, instead of being covered up, he is stripped naked. Um, he is, he sort of becomes, um, you know, the, the greatest shame of Adam and Eve. And, you know, instead of Adam and Eve being covered over, he's the one who's, uh, you know, who's stripped of all of his garments. Um, and he, uh, and he is not covered up. But it, you might simply boil it all down like this. Um, Jesus becomes naked so that we would be clothed. Yeah. Because yeah. The, uh, you already identified him, right? As John the Baptist hails Jesus, um, you know, at the very be- you know, or close to the beginning of John 1, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Lamb, you know, it, it's clearly a sacrificial lamb that John is making reference to, whose blood would be shed. And what is it that we wear? Um, you know, what is it that we put on as Christians? White robes made white by the blood of the lamb. Mm. He becomes naked. He sheds his blood so that we might be clothed in his holiness. Mm. Yeah, the connection that you made to what happens in the Garden of Eden, I think, is fantastic. So that we see Christ, our substitute, the one who bears our sins for us so that we might be covered in his righteousness. So the soldiers do far more than they think they are doing when they divide his garments. John 
illuminates that for us in his text. Now, he continues then, after pointing out what happens with Jesus' garments, then he makes mention of some of the people who are standing by watching Jesus' crucifixion, and he particularly notes Jesus' mother and the disciple whom Jesus loved, and Jesus says something to these two. Take us into to this scene, verses 25 to 27. Yeah, it's, it's absolutely beautiful because, uh, well, I mean, there's so many great things about it. It's certainly touching uh, in and of itself on kind of a human level that— uh, that Jesus, even is you know, even as he's suffering on the cross and as he's going through his absolute agony, not only the physical pain that he's enduring, but also the, uh, you know, the unimaginable punishment that he's uh, he's, he's suffering on our own behalf. Um, he doesn't forget about his mom, right? Uh, he fulfills the fourth commandment to the very end, um, because, you know, it's, uh, you know, because he's the perfect son. In fact, we, uh, if you remember this, this, this uh, comes up not, once again, not in the book of John, but earlier on um, when, uh, when Jesus is brought to the temple and, uh, and what does he say to his parents? You know, they, they're looking around for him and they can't find him. They go back to the temple and what does he say? He says, don't you know that I must be about my father's uh, business? Or at least that's how I would translate it. Um, you know, about my father's things which really emphasizes the fact that, yes, Joseph is indeed um, Jesus's father, but, but more so, you know, the father is his father. And so he, on the one hand, he does precisely, you know, he fulfills the father's will in all that he does. That's a, you know, the theme we see very, very clearly throughout the book of Matthew, but also in the book of John as well. Um, but also he honors his mother. In fact, we saw that in John, even from the uh, from the very second chapter, uh, you know, in that kind of strange exchange that we have with, um, with between he and his mom in, uh, you know, it, with the wedding at Cana. Um, but he does indeed, uh, he honors his mother, and even here at the very in the very last moments, he makes sure that uh, that she is cared for, uh, you know, even because he's not going to be there. Hmm. So. Is there something in this inner interaction between Jesus and his mother and John, the disciple whom Jesus loved? Is there something also to the to the effect of the family of God as Jesus right. gives that to us? Not just yeah, in the sense of you know, like like you know, blood blood relations, but a, a different yeah. kind of blood relations in right, Jesus. Right. Yeah. No, I, I was I was going to I was going to go there. So I'm glad you prompted me to it. Um, if you remember, Jesus also says, uh, you know, when he, uh, where is he? I think he's, is he in Nazareth? I can't remember where he is. He's teaching somewhere though. And somebody says, hey, you're, you know, your brothers are outside and, you know, they think you're crazy. Um, and he says, who are my, who are my, who are my brothers? Uh, and he looks around at those sitting around hearing and believing him. He says, um, you know, these are my mother and my sister and my brothers. And he goes on, he says, forever, whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. And so I think you see an even further kind of entrusting uh, on the cross where it's not just that he takes care of his, of his physical, biological mother there, but that he shows his, you might say, his allegiance and his, his care for all of his family. Which of course is not necessarily, uh, you know, determined by genetics, um, but is actually determined by those um, who hear his word 
and believe, those mm-hmm. whom he calls, those who are actually uh, adopted and, uh, and uh, become the, uh, the heirs um, along with him. So in other words, uh, just to put it real bluntly, when he's caring for his mom, um, we should give thought to the fact that he also cares for us in much the same way. Hmm. Right. I mean, so, you know, thinking about Jesus brothers in John's gospel, we saw them back in chapter seven. They wanted Jesus to go up to the the feast at that time openly. And Jesus says he's not going to do that. So his, his brothers don't believe in him at this point. But here is is John at the foot of the cross with his mother. And so Jesus entrusting his mother to the care of John, again, is certainly a way of him keeping the fourth commandment, but also speaks more broadly about the care that Jesus provides to us all in his church, that, that he right. would seek to care for all of us as his, his mother, his brothers, his sisters. Within the church, there's a greater thing going on that the, the family that we share in Christ is such a, a strong bond, a one that certainly is, is a spiritual bond, no doubt, but also has this aspect of caring for each other physically, and he gives that here to his his own mother, and he puts her into the care of the disciple whom he loved. Which again, and I think we just briefly mentioned this is this is John, the author of right. the gospel that we're talking about here. Right. Yeah. Okay. So, and and just as another point to that, then we also see that John is in fact an eyewitness of these events. He and he's going to make that point in the next text that he has has seen these things with his own eyes. He was there seeing Jesus on the cross. Here, Jesus puts Mary, the mother of Christ, into the care of John. So from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. Then verse 28, after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst, and some drink is given to Jesus. Talk a little bit about what's what's going on here. What's the scripture that needs to be fulfilled? Uh, talk a little bit about the thirsting of Jesus. Right. Well, I mean, from the the, uh, the practical level, um, uh, you know, they I think this was pretty common that he's he's being given you know wine vinegar, which is essentially a uh, you know it's kind of a mild uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for a mild painkiller, um, and so it, this apparently was a pretty common thing. But yeah, it was it was to fulfill the scriptures, and um, you know, and it's not exactly clear which one it could be but it's most likely one of two passages we either go back to psalm 22 um uh, verse 15 my strength is dried up like a pot shirt and my tongue sticks to my jaws you lay me in the dust of death um which you can kind of see the, the relationship there um or they gave me poison for food and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink that's probably the strong one that's from psalm 69 um verse 21 and uh, to be quite honest, though, I did not do, okay, so I'm, I'm admitting it right on air. I didn't do a lot of, uh, of research in the Psalm, uh, Psalm 69. I just kind of skipped over it. So so if you've got anything great on that, I'd love to hear it. No, no, that, that's okay. The the matter, I think I think Psalm 69 is probably the place, if you're if you're going to attach to a specific Bible verse, I think that's that's where you go. I guess right. the, a, another thing that I, I think is maybe worth a little bit of, of conversation, if, if you want, is this Jesus thirsting here. When oh, you yeah, think yeah, about, I had something to say about that. Well, too. just when you think about, and this is where I was, was thinking, when you think about all of the references to living water right, that come right. up in John's gospel, for Jesus right, John, to thirst here is, seems mm-hmm, ironic. Mm-hmm. There's something bigger going on again. Right, yeah, in John chapter 4, if you, of course, you remember that the, uh, you know, 
um, the, uh, why am I, uh, Samaritan woman comes up to him, uh, you know, and the disciples, they've gone into the, the town to get food and, and, uh, and he asks for a drink, but then kind of turns the tables on her and says, and says, well, you know, if you, uh, if you knew who you were talking to, you would have asked for living water, um, which of course is, uh, we automatically jump to kind of the, the quote unquote more spiritual meaning of that. But what that literally means is simply flowing water. But then Jesus kind of describes it in a way that seems that he's talking about more than just running water. Uh, he says, you know, you would have, uh, you would have asked for this and you never would have had to come back to the well again, right? I mean, you would have, you would, your, uh, your thirst would have been, uh, slaked forever. Is that the past tense of slake? I can't remember. Um, but, but then, you know, and they go back and forth, uh, about this, but Jesus clearly describes himself as, you know, the, the one as, as the living water himself and the one who is able to quench the, you know, uh, their thirst, not meaning that like, you never got to go and get a drink of water from the sink. Uh, but that, that this, what, this is a water that wells up to eternal life. This is a life giving water. And of course it brings in all the associations from, you know, the water in the desert at, uh, was it Massa and Meribah, uh, you know, with the Israelites wandering around in the wilderness. And, um, and basically, I think in many ways, it also probably indirectly pulls in all of the kind of water miracles of the Old Testament as well. But then it seems so stark for Jesus then to say, like Jesus, the living water from heaven, to say, I thirst, because he himself is being poured out. Um, and the, the very one who can, who can indeed slake our thirst with that of eternal life, he himself is running dry for our sake. Yeah, some more of that great exchange oh, yeah. language going on here with Jesus, the source of living water, thirsting now in our place. So that, that sour wine is given to him, Jesus receives it, and then he speaks for the last time before his crucifixion or before his death in John's gospel. He says, it is finished. He bows his head and gave up his spirit. Take us into those last words of Jesus as John records them there in verse 30. Right. Such uh, famous, well-known words, but I think also sometimes potentially misunderstood words. Um, you know, because I think sometimes when we hear finished, it's, um, you know, we, we think of things being, you know, well, everything's over, folks, you know, like, Show's over, go home, <laughs> you know, and, and it's, it becomes completely in the past. Um, but just uh, at the risk of uh, venturing into a little bit of Greek grammar here, or actually uh, verbiage, um, this is what's called a perfect, um, a perfect tense. And we, we've got a, an approximation of that in English as well for all the, uh, the grammar geeks out there. But here's the short of it is, it's a verb form that indicates something which has been completed in the past but has ongoing results. That's the idea of it. So it's certainly not um, just a past tense thing, like, okay, it's finished, it's done, and it's not going to do anything else. Um, so in the grammatical sense here, um, this really emphasizes the fact that this is, this is complete, you might say. You know, that because uh, I think that word gives you a lot, lot better sense that... Um, that it's not over and done with, but complete in the sense of being fulfilled, and it still has ramifications for today. Now, obviously, there's what's more important, of course, is the theology behind this, um, because 
you know, Christ's crucifixion is not something, you know, his sacrifice is not something which is sort of locked away in the vaults of time and that it just, you know, it was only good for that time. We somehow have to transport ourselves back to that time just to like think and meditate on, but that it, you know, um, how would I put this? It's spills over the shores of time to transcend, or maybe I should say transcend, but to, uh, to go both backwards and forwards in time. You know, there's the classic, I'm sure you've probably gotten asked this question before by either uh, confirmation kids or whatnot, but um, well, what about all the people in the Old Testament, you know, who, who died before Jesus got, you know, before Jesus was crucified, right? <laughs> well, they're saved by his crucifixion too, because when, when it is finished, that is when it is complete, his sacrificial work is complete. Um, it, it goes in both directions, chrono, you know, to, chronologically. In other words, it is just as much complete for Adam and Eve as it is for the baby who was baptized just last Sunday. It applies to all of humanity. I mean, even if not all humanity is saved, um, but it applies uh, that sacrifice is for the atonement of the world across time and space. And so it's not just, oh, well, that thing happened. No, it is complete for all time. Mm. And I, I think if I could add one more point to that, it really helps us appreciate the fact that, you know, we don't need to add anything on to uh, Jesus' sacrifice. And so if we're willing to take this literally, um, we are, or it should say, take it seriously, this statement, a simple statement of Jesus, it is finished or it is complete, really um, challenges any Christian misunderstanding that like we've got some things to add to Jesus's work. We need to do this. And we need to do that. Uh, you know, because even though I don't think most people aren't going to say it, we've been, we've had a really bad habit as Christians over the years of trying to supplement Jesus's work. And this statement, it is finished, it is complete, will not allow that. Because frankly, um, you know, we're, Jesus did the job. We don't have to be Jesus. Hmm. I, I really appreciate the way that you brought out that grammar, not only because I enjoy grammar, but also because I, I think the way that you, you know, it stands finished or it stands complete then, the, the way you explained it, uh, prevents us from misunderstanding this and thinking, well, well, what about the resurrection? Because if it's finished now on Good Friday, then what was the point of Easter? Well, I, I think when you, you think about it in that perfect tense sense that it stands accomplished, that means that, right. that it, this statement of Jesus fully includes what technically hasn't happened yet, chronologically speaking. Right. It fully includes what he's going to do on Easter in rising from the dead. Right. And it's not as if the resurrection somehow undoes right. the, the, the crucifixion either. Like, oh, well, that was really sad, but don't worry. Now we don't ever have to think about the crucifixion again um, because, because both things are part of an indispensable whole. Right. Um, you know, there is, you know, the, uh, the crucifixion and the resurrection cannot be parted, even though they, you know, even though you can't put them in order, right. um, they do have an order to them. Um, it's not as if they are somehow separate from each other, though, either. Right. And so, uh, yeah, yeah. Right. So when we when we say we preach Christ crucified, we right. we preach the totality of what he has done. And it, but it is it is striking, you know, Christ crucified. That part that includes 
all of the shame that we've been talking about and this unexpected nature of Christ's kingship, that is what gets emphasized because here is where Christ accomplishes all that we needed in the way that only he could do. Got about two minutes here on the morning, Pastor Johnson. Help us to wrap things up with the significance, the good news of Jesus' death on the cross for us. (laughs) Two minutes minutes for your Good Friday sermon. (laughs) Right, right. Yeah, it's... um... So many, so many things to say. I guess what, what, let, let's go back and do, and, and do a quick review all in order, right? What we see is Jesus hanging there on the cross, um, where we should have been hanging, um, because the, uh, because Jesus dies as if he is a criminal, even though he's not, um, but taking the place of them. And those two criminals could have been anybody, um, and they should have been us. And yet he comes also paradoxically, though, you know, as a king and his his kingship, of course, like like he says to to um, uh, to Pilate is not of this world. Neat, really meaning that it doesn't look like other kingships do. And ultimately, his kingship is that of uh, is ultimately fulfilled in his own sacrifice uh, that he comes as the lamb king, you might say, uh, the one who dies on behalf of his own subjects. And, uh, and as he, as he uh, suffers there for his own subjects, he doesn't just, um, he ironically still can, you know, takes care of us, not even just merely as subjects, which can sound so cold and callous, but as family. Um, and that when he, uh, when he gives up his spirit, or, or I should say just before he declares that, uh, that this is not, there, there's nothing left for us to do. There is no part that is left undone by Jesus that it is indeed complete. It is stands finished. Um, that we do, we never have to wonder, is there something that I need to supplement Jesus's work with? But that it is uh, he and he alone who has accomplished this for me, for the world. And uh, all we can say is amen. Pastor Jeremiah Johnson is pastor at Glory of Christ Lutheran Church in Plymouth, Minnesota. He's been helping us today to study John chapter 19, verses 17 to 30. Pastor Johnson, thanks for being our guest today. Thank you. I am your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. If you have any questions about the gospel according to St. John, send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. It's always a pleasure to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk again tomorrow.